So what is the true meaning of Christmas? Uh, well, it is not about a king, it's about the king, uh, the, the one and only king of kings, Jesus Christ. Uh, the angel Gabriel, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, um, puts this all in perspective when he says this uh, to Mary. He says, and behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Uh, imagine if you're Mary, uh, and you are told uh, you are going to be uh, the one chosen uh, to bear the Messiah, the king that's been long awaited, uh, and his kingdom will have no end. Imagine her, her excitement, her joy. Uh, imagine she didn't have to think of a child's name either. Uh, you didn't have to get a book and look through the book of Jewish boy names. No, the angel's like, this is his name, Jesus, uh, which uh, the Hebrew version, Yeshua, means to save because he's going to be the savior. But when you look back across biblical history, this is, uh, when you're in Luke, you're looking a thousand years down the road from uh, the time of Moses. Um, when you look back uh, at history, uh, God revealed things in a progressive format. So why all the candles uh, up here? Because in my mind, it's like a metaphor representing progressive revelation. God's going to start uh, in our darkness, and he's going to open the door a little bit. He's going to give you light, revelatory light. Uh, and as you look at that revelatory light, uh, he's going to give you a little bit more light. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you see more and more uh, points of light concerning the coming one, uh, the Messiah, which is hope for us, uh, because uh, it's pointing to the fact the king is going to come uh, and redeem us and set up a kingdom from their perspective. But now we know, looking back, well, he has come, he has dealt with sin, but his kingdom uh, program is not finished, he's coming again. And so if he came literally the first time, he's coming back literally the second time. So I wanted to look at a progressive revelation from the perspective of uh, the Old Testament uh, as how God opened the door in our darkness to, to show us how, how he was going to work to uh, provide salvation for us and also how he was going to bring the key to us. Uh, so some of these passages you're going to know well, some of them uh, maybe not so well, uh, but we want to study these prophecies. Uh, uh, prophecy, uh, prophetic fulfillment is most amazing to study. In fact, if I wasn't a Christian and I sat and listened to uh, prophecies and prophetic fulfillment, I think I could become a Christian just based upon the, there's no way these things happened by accident. They were very specific. You cannot control things like the town you're born in, Bethlehem, how you're going to die, what they're going to do after your death, etc. So when Christ fulfilled 60 exact prophecies, it's statistically impossible for him to do that. We'll look more into that next week. Today, what we want to do is just look at, as Paul's going to talk about in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10, that as God works sovereignly through history uh, to fulfill his kingdom messianic redemptive processes, when Christ was born, it was the right time to fulfill these things. But when did that all start? Well, that all starts back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Uh, Genesis, chapter 3, um, you might think that's kind of a, uh, an obscure place to start for Christmas. That's the fall of mankind. But if you look at the purpose of Christmas, well, the Savior came to fix the fall. That's why he came. And so you, you have to start with the first cryptic uh, prophecy concerning Christ in Genesis 3, 14, and 15 to understand the purpose of his mission. And so that's where we're going to start in Genesis 3. Uh, and I want to focus on 14 and 15, but I can't focus on 14 and 15 in Genesis 3 unless we look at Genesis 1 through 13. Uh, and so we want to begin today by looking at the motif that's brought about by this passage uh, that it, and it's, this is what it bears forth, that from spiritual loss, man's fall, 
uh, comes chaos. But spiritual gain and victory are promised by God. So in, in the chaos of our fall, God's going to speak into that judgment, but he's also going to speak into that mercy. And thank God he spoke in mercy. Because when man fell in the garden, God could have said, okay, I'm, I'm finished. I, I'm, I'm not going to mess with you anymore. But no, he wanted a relationship. And so he's going to do through the Messiah what needs to be done to re- redeem sinners to allow them to be part of his kingdom. And so this is a, the ultimate Christmas message because it's telling you the reason why Christ came. And so what happened in that garden? And I do believe in a literal garden and in a literal land with a literal snake, etc. as we're going to talk about. What happened? Uh, well, God gave uh, in the book of Genesis, and Genesis, by the way, the word means the book of beginnings. So uh, what began in Genesis? Well, the cosmos, chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, the fall of mankind uh, into sin happened. Uh, in chapter 3, chapter 4, uh, we have the first murder between one brother and another brother, and they were fighting uh, over uh, how to approach God. Uh, and so you go throughout the book, uh, it's the first flood, major worldwide flood, uh, the only one of that kind. Uh, it's when languages started at Babel, uh, when God uh, confused mankind's languages. So all throughout the uh, Old Testament, you, when you look at Genesis, everything started there, uh, down to man's fall from grace uh, when God said, I want to have communion with you, man had other ideas. So God uh, put man in a garden of Eden in, in lots of trees and was uh, eat from many of the fruit trees. But there was just one tree in the middle of the garden. He said, that one's off limits. And so in chapter 2, uh, verse 16, uh, here's the simple command God gave to our uh, parents, Adam and Eve. What did he say? The Lord God commanded the man saying, I have a simple command for you. you from any of the trees in the garden, you can eat freely enjoy. There's just this one caveat. Uh, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall die, physically and spiritually. So Genesis chapter 5 is is like the death chapter of the Old Testament, because you read it. It will tell you how long they lived, and it says they died, and they died, and they died, because the wages of sin is death. But life comes through Christ. That's what we're going to find in Genesis. And so God's command was pretty simple. So if you're uh, Adam in the garden and you got your new wife, Eve, and there's thousands of trees with all kinds of awesome fruit. And remember, there's no sin. So you don't have to worry about fungus or disease or anything on the trees. Perfect fruit. Imagine, I don't know, when you go to the grocery, if you touch all the fruit, do you touch it? Yeah, because you want to get the, the best melon, the best this. But imagine if it was all perfect. Uh, so God's not unreasonable. He said, uh, eat of any tree that you want. Uh, just save one. That particular tree of knowledge of good and evil you can't eat. So that begins the, the Christmas story. Uh, it begins in that garden. Uh, and we're going to move through this in a structural format um, to support the premise that from, uh, from spiritual loss and chaos comes uh, great gain and victory through Christ. Uh, what happened there? Well, let's first look at the road of the tempter, the tempter being the devil. Um, verse one, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. This is an unusual serpent, is it not? Have you ever been to the zoo and talked to a snake? <laughs> Probably not. If you, if you have, call me. There's numbers you need to talk to. What, who, who is this? What is this? This is, not a, this is not a normal serpent. Because we know from progressive revelation, as God opens up meaning to us, when we get to the New Testament thousands of years later, and it looks back at what happened. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Revelation 12, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2, the last book of the Bible, that the serpent was Satan. I mean, he was, he was, 
using the serpent. Uh, now, why would he use a serpent? Well, because the serpent, uh, if, you, if you think about a snake, do you like snakes? How many, how many don't like snakes? Oh my gosh, because they're, they're big and scary. They're just kind of creepy, aren't they, how they move? Uh, but, you know, but they're kind of innocuous and they don't seem too threatening that as they slither along and move. Um, and so at, at, the, at the day and time with, uh, before the fall and uh, all the animals uh, liked mankind and, and obeyed mankind and they weren't fighting and eating each other, uh, the snake was probably very uh, non-threatening uh, when they would see the snake in the garden. And so the, it was crafty because uh, it didn't look like a threat, but it was. That's probably why the devil used this slithering serpent. Uh, he's going to use that serpent to test uh, man and woman, their allegiance to God and his command. So we read, he, the snake, uh, speaking, it's a speaking snake. And if you think talking animals are, are bizarre, uh, just think of the story of Balaam. Imagine you're riding your donkey <laughs> to go, well, disobey God. And the donkey starts talking to you. Uh, read that story in the book of Numbers because the, the donkey finally turns around and tells him, I ain't going anywhere further because there's an angel in front of me with a, he's a huge, scary, bright, brilliant being. I'm not moving. So uh, it's happened before. And I would say since God made those animals, he can make them do what he wants to. But if your cat or your dog is talking to you, that's a whole other thing. They do talk, don't they? Whole other thing. This is an unusual situation. The this, this snake has a, has a question. Uh, he, the, he said to the woman, indeed, I have a question. Has God said, quote, he's quoting God, the devil, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Did God say that? Did God say that? No, that is not exactly what God said. So the last person you would probably want to get a quote from, from what God said is from the devil. Because what's he going to do? He's going to take the word of God and he's going to twist it. This is what he does with you when he comes to tempt you. He presents to you what you think God said, but he twists that so you can be deceived and rationalize your sin. And so he says, did God say this? And what he does is he makes God appear that he's, oh, he's so restraining of your personal liberty. He's so limited to your freedom of expression. Uh, he's limited? I mean, you, you can't eat of the trees? Uh, notice uh, what he's really saying is if, if God is really good, don't you think that you could eat from every tree? But God was good because he said you can eat from every tree that you want to, just one. Uh, Eve took the bait, and notice what she says in verse 2. And, and the woman said to the serpent, well, let me quote to you what God told us. Because remember who, gave, who got the command originally? Adam did. He probably told that to his wife. Uh, God told us from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the tree of the, which is in the middle of the garden, you know, the one of good and evil, uh, God has said, you shall not eat from it. And then what'd she do? She added to it. He said, you should not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. This is entry. Pay attention to what she added because the devil was. The devil wants to know, is she listening to me? He's questioning the person of God, and she's all of a sudden saying something about God that God never said. She added to what God said. She added to the scripture. So the devil already sees, ah, there's a breakage. She's adding to what God said. Because God said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden that you want to, just one, you can't eat from it, but did God ever say you can't touch it? No, he never said that. She added that. Um, 
it was uh, a forbidden tree, but they, they could not eat from it. They just couldn't touch it. So the devil ran with this, did he not? He ran with it. What does he do? This is how the devil always operates. First, he tempts you to question God's word. Pick an issue, whatever the issue is, cultural issue, personal issue. He will tempt you with a question. Did God really say that you couldn't do that? I mean, really? Uh, and, and then, well, I, I don't see it anywhere. When I was in high school, I, I had a really foul mouth. I really did. It was great for sports because you could use it to intimidate your opponents. Tell me you have not tried this. Uh, and I was, felt really bad, only Christian on the team, and I had a really, really bad mouth. Uh, and, and I would look through the scriptures. Where does it say that I can't cuss? I was 17, 18, you know. I was like, where does it say I can't cuss? Is the word cussing in the Bible? Never found it. But I did find words like filthy communication. But then, well, that isn't exactly cussing. You know what I mean? So I would, the devil was doing a number on me. It took me many years to get my act together. Uh, but, but it's how the devil operates. That's God said. And he tempts you. And then he listens to your responses, and he carefully waits to see what do you do with what he says, and then he runs with that. So notice what he does in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman when he heard this from her mouth, oh, you surely shall not die. You're not going to die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil like he does. This is very interesting. It's very ironic. According to John 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. So the father of lies is accusing the God of truth of being a liar. God has deceived you. He he put you in this garden. He gave you this tree. He's restricted you to eat it. He's testing your, your freedoms. This is ridiculous. Go ahead and eat. We all know that if you eat, nothing's going to happen. Such is the nature of the devil. He's actually, he's who is the liar is calling God a liar. Uh, did she listen? Yeah. Yeah, she listened to him. Um, when the devil lies to you, there's usually a little bit of truth in it to get you to believe it. And then when you give in, well, then that's when the truth becomes sour. Because then you just find out, well, I did, okay, let's put it this way. Did she learn what good and evil was? Yes. Yeah. Was that a good thing? No, no. So the devil told her truth to a point, but he lied to her to tell her, not to tell her everything. So, um, as a st- side note, you need to stop and ask yourself, as we look at the road of the tempter that leads us to the, the coming of the Messiah, the king, what's the, what's the serpent whispering in your ear? What's he whispering? He whispers all the time. Uh, is he getting you to question God's word just outright? Getting you to question it uh, and, and presenting it in a negative light to get you to commit a sin to then rationalize that behavior away? Are you naively thinking uh, that if you willingly break a known command of God that nothing will happen to you? Well, something always happens when you disobey the word of God. But that's the devil. Uh, What happened? Well, the results of the temptation, verses 6 to 13, on our way to verse 14 and 15 about Jesus, tells us uh, the results. Verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and she ate. Then what'd she do? Well, she's married. This fruit's amazing. Adam's got to have some of this. She gives it to her husband. Did he ask any questions? Why aren't the man talking? Well, you know, what should the man have said? 
Are you crazy? Thank you from the front row. Thank you. Are you crazy? God said, we, we are not supposed to eat, eat from that tree. What are you doing? Uh, he didn't ask any questions at all. He just got it from her and ate. Good idea, bad idea, bad idea. Yeah. Now, b- bear in mind how this operated. She ate, and, and it doesn't say anything happened right away. So she probably ate, no lightning, no thunder, and she probably thought, well, it tastes good. It must be okay. See? I mean, God, I guess, lied to me. Um, turns around and gives it to the, 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 the devil because she ate of it and she didn't die, like God said. So at that point, it says in verse 7, because she gave it to her husband and he, he just thoughtlessly just took it and ate it uh, and willfully in his pride. It says in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Then they knew at that point the difference between good and evil. And they were naked. They saw that. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So automatically, they went from, oh, yeah, we, we will gain knowledge all right, but it's not a good thing because now we see what sin is and that we're sinners and that we've done something God wanted us not to do. Uh, and now we understand that we have died spiritually because they feel shame and they feel guilt. And so they try to hide from God. There's always a price to pay when you disobey God's word. Uh, results of temptation, always the same. Sinful activity will always lead to despair when you live contrary to God. So what they tried to do next, they tried to hide from God. Uh, can you hide from God? No, no, bad idea. Uh, he, he can always see you because he's omnipresent and he's omniscient. Verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord from among the trees in the garden. Uh, this is probably a theophany. Uh, the Greek word theos means to, you know, God. It's an appearance of God. Uh, how did God do this? Uh, this could be like the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, who appears in the Old Testament at several junctures, could be him walking in the garden. Uh, don't get caught up on exactly how did he do this. It just says that he did. Uh, but he's, the Lord is in the garden with them. And this is really interesting, I think, because he wants to have fellowship with them. I mean, this is the cool part. He wants to know them. I mean, think of the magnitude of that. I just saw last night when I went to bed some new pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope of colliding galaxies in the cosmos that are, you know, 600 like million light years away. And I'm just like, I'm looking at this stunned before I went to bed thinking, the God who made this immensity wants to know me? It's amazing. It wants to know you. And so he, he, the Lord came to the garden to have fellowship with them. And verse 9 says, the Lord called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Did God need to ask that question? Why? He, he knew where he was. He's hiding in the bushes. Uh, realizing he couldn't hide from God, uh, Adam piped up and he said, uh, 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 well, Lord, I, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, God is the essence of logic. He asked a logical question designed to get at the heart of the sin of man. So in verse 11, uh, he said, God said to Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you? I mean, this is like, if you have children, (laughs) you know how this works? You know, and and, and they've done something they weren't supposed to do. You caught them with the hand in the proverbial cookie jar and you're asking them questions. Uh, Yeah, who, who, uh, huh? How'd you get the cookie in your hand? I don't know. Um, And so Adam uh, realized he was naked. The only way he could realize that he was naked is uh, he ate of the tree. And so Adam, like every sinner, did what sinners do. It's called the blame game. Hey, I'm not responsible. So in verse 12, the man uh, said, uh, well, Lord, it works like this. I'm adding to the text in case you're wondering. Uh, The woman, (laughs) 
They didn't even use her name. <laughs> the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Translated, this is, is this a really good rationalization? No, no, no. It's pretty weak. You know, God, it's like this. If you wouldn't have made her, I wouldn't be in this predicament because I wouldn't have done that. But she got me to do it. There's no way I, I'm responsible for this. Amazing, isn't it? You have to stop and ask yourself, if you're a man, do I blame my wife for my sinful activity? This is from the garden. Moving on, it's too convicting. Verse 13. And then the Lord then said to the woman who's standing there as she came out of the bushes, uh, what is this that you've done? Uh, and the woman said, I'm so sorry, I disobeyed, I repent in dust and ashes. And what'd she do? She blamed the serpent. You know that serpent that you made? Well, that, that serpent deceived me and I ate. Both of them blamed somebody else for their sin. Don't you see that in our culture all the time? I mean, think about how great the nation would be if everybody from a politician to a military official to a school teacher to a, a football coach to whoever just took responsibility for their sin. I said, yeah, I apologize, but they won't. Where'd they learn how to do that? Came from Adam and Eve. Came from the garden. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent stands at the head of the sentence in Hebrew for emphasis. Uh, Romans chapter 5, 12 tells us what happened at that precise moment. It says, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death, spiritual death and physical death came through sin, so the death then spread to all men. Why? All sin. How's that work? I mean, because people will say, well, that wasn't fair. If I was in the garden, I would have told my wife, I'm not touching that. Nah, you would have probably bit the dust too. <laughs> so what, what's up with this? Well, God put our forefathers in that garden and he gave them all the trees to eat except for one. Why did he do that? so you could have an expression of your free will. What is free will? Free will is the, the ability to say otherwise. Otherwise, we'd have just been robots. So God tested us in our free will. And once they succumbed and, and sinned against God and, and shook their fist in his face, God says in Romans 5:12 that at that precise moment, they both fell into sin and us with them. How so? By two means. Inherited sin and imputed sin. Inherited sin is? How did you get sin? Came from my dad and my mom. Where did it come? Well, from my grandparents. And on back, all the way to Adam and Eve. That's inherited sin. You can't escape it. Now, our culture tends to think that all men are born good and uh, societal uh, economic conditions make some evil. Uh, that's a lie from the devil. Uh, because sin starts from the Adam and Eve, and it comes through us genetically. Imputed sin is a, is a banking term, that when you add money to a ledger, that you're imputing uh, money to something, uh, putting it in a ledger. Uh, God put in our ledger instantly that when they fell, we all fell with them because we were there in seed form. But that's not the end of this story because that's where the Christmas story gets going. In verses 14 and 15, you see what is called the promise in the tempest. I mean, as, as we went south, spiritually speaking, God then looks down from heaven and says, I'm holy, I have to judge sin, but I'm gonna send a savior. Because in his wrath, he always remembers mercy. So in verses 14 and following, here's what we read about God's promise. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, all every beast of the field. On you barely you shall go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. So think about this, two things. Number one, the, the snake is judged. I mean, it's literally judged. 
And some scholars think that the snake that you see today is not, doesn't look like the snake back then, that it had uh, different kinds of bodily movements compared to what it is today. God lowers it to where it has to crawl on the ground, slither on the ground. Why? Because God's going to say to the snake, every time someone sees a snake slithering in the dirt, they're going to see something that's dirty, and it's going to remind them of something that's revulsive and evil every time they see one. Uh, And that's going to be a perpetual thing until God recreates a new heaven and a new earth, that the snake is going to look as that which is sinful. When you get to the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 42, anything that crawled on the ground like this was considered unclean before God. God said the snake will be the head of the metaphor of an illustration of evil and sin. Number two, uh, the judgment was against the ultimate serpent, the devil, the ultimate snake. Because in the degradation of the snake crawling along the ground, that's an illustration that the devil will always be degraded. See, today you tend to lose hope because you look at what goes on in the world and think everything's going south. Everything seems like it's off track. God says, oh, no, it's on track. It's on my track. What's his track? Well, his track is to bring the king who's going to deal the death blow to the devil. That's what we see. Uh, The devil uh, fell because of sin, because of pride. Men sinned because of pride. And in the book of Isaiah chapter 14, it lists the five I wills of the devil when he fell as a head cherubim, head angel. God says to him through Isaiah, but you said in your heart, what did the devil say to God himself? I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And that's just a code word for angelic beings. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in God's courtroom in the recesses of the north. He says, the devil said to God at that time, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Translated, I will be God. Nevertheless, God tells him, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. God will judge the devil. And he did. But when you get to uh, the book of uh, Genesis chapter 3, you see God's judgment on the devil in verse 15. Notice what he says to the devil. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus, that Gabriel talked about. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, her seed, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first application of a prophetic word concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. That's why you have to start here. Uh, two things to realize. Number one, God prophetically informs the serpent that there's going to be uh, those of the woman's future who will always effectively oppose him. Now, there, we know from progressive revelation that the path to destruction is wide and many are on it, according to Jesus. And the path to life is narrow and there are few that are on it. So the, the seed of the serpent are going to outnumber the seed of the woman. But God tells the devil here, there's going to be a constant conflict between light and darkness, good and evil, until I fulfill my plan, but her seed is always going to be around to cause you problems. I don't know about you, but this is how I make it through the day, because I understand that God will fulfill his word to the letter, that even though it seems like godly people and holiness and logical thinking are outnumbered in our day and age, uh, no, we're on track going where God's taken us to bring the king. He's, he's going to deal with the devil and, and fin- finalize this. So when you think about biblical history, you see her seed, the godly side of her seed, opposed the devil. Uh, Abel uh, stood against his evil brother, Cain. Enoch stood against the evil doers of his day. Noah uh, and his, his wife and his three sons and their wives wound up on an ark and withstood the entire culture that went south on them. 
Shem, the son of Noah, uh, and his descendants are through whom the Messiah would one day come. He was the godly line. Abraham in chapter 12 was going to stand against the wicked of his day, and on and on it goes. You have to stop and ask yourself, if you're a Christian, you're part of all that. You're part of that fulfillment that I represent Christ where I am. I am his light, and I am a problem for the devil because I live for Christ. Now think about this. God assures his, his holy seed will always be there. Second thing, in verse 15, notice what he says prophetically. Now he switches from the seed of the woman to a seed within her line, because he says, he, he shall bruise you on your head and you will bruise him on the heel. We know from progressive revelation uh, that this is a reference to um, uh, the seed being Jesus, the Messiah, uh, and the devil himself. Because we know when, they, when we get to the cross, and from what we understand from the New Testament, when the devil inflicts the crucifixion on Christ, he thinks he's, he's destroyed God's program. But the ironic thing is, he merely fulfilled God's program. Because before he could be the king, he had to first be the savior. And to be the savior, he had to be the sacrifice. And so the thing that the devil does in, in, in this giant conflict of the ages in trying to wipe out the Messiah, he merely terminates himself. Imagine this. The seed of the woman would be the Christ. Light is given to us that that struggle was going to one day be fulfilled. It's fulfilled in a twofold format. The devil was uh, afflicted Christ by striking him on the hill, as it were, but Christ afflicted the devil with a head blow in a twofold format. The, the death and resurrection of Christ was the first uh, implementation of God's plan to deal with the devil from Genesis 3. He has another part of his plan that's called the second coming. When he comes back and he deals with the devil and all of his seed, he will deal with them when he separates the sheep from the goats and sets up his kingdom. That revelation is given at the end of the Bible as God progressively tells us what he said back in Genesis 3.15, he's gonna fulfill when Jesus comes back. I have to ask you, you ready for his second return? I'm ready. I can't wait to see him uh, because when he comes back, he's the seed that's bringing the kingdom. But all throughout the Old Testament, the, the devil just knows that a seed is coming. Did he know exactly who? I don't, are you in the military? This is called psychops. What's God doing? He's doing psychops on the devil. He's telling him, oh, you think you tried to overthrow my, my creation? Well, I'm going to overthrow you. And it's going to be a man who's going to come through her line. But you're not going to know who it is exactly. So the devil can read, can he not? most beautiful, intelligent being ever created. So as he reads through the Torah and the prophets, as time goes along, he knew, well, the seed's coming. So he knew in, Genesis, in Isaiah 7, 14, that the seed was going to be called Emmanuel or God with us. So he knew that God was coming. And he knew from uh, Psalm 2, 7, that the seed would be a son of David. And he would also be the son of God. And he knew from Genesis 22, 18, that the seed would be a son of Abraham. And he knew that the seed would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49, which we'll study, I think, next week. And then he knew that the seed would come from the Davidic line from Jeremiah 23, later on in the prophets. So the devil starts connecting all the dots, but he doesn't know exactly who. And then in 5 BC, he's born. Who is that that was born in Bethlehem? The Christ. Why was he born? to crush the devil and defeat him definitively when he went to the cross and when he rose from the grave. I just have a question. Do you know him? Do you know Christ? The only one equipped to deal with sin and Satan. 
He came to redeem us, that's why he came. That's the purpose of his mission. We can't lose that at Christmas time, that the king has come to fix the fall for us, but we have to turn to him in saving faith. How amazing. Romans chapter 16. Uh, we read this from Paul looking back at Genesis 3. Notice what he says. For the report of your obedience has reached to all as Romans. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And then notice what he adds. And the God of peace will soon do what? Crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. This is hope. That the evil that you see today is not perpetual. That the king came the first time to be the savior by dying for our sins. He's coming back the second time to deal with the devil definitively and establish his kingdom. You gonna be there? How do you get to be there? You bow before Christ as your savior and he makes you his child. I'll tell you Merry Christmas ahead of time because it's gonna be merry because we look for the king. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for the opportunity to look back uh, at this foundational text of the coming of your son. Thank you for over thousands of years, you intricately wove all the prophecies together with great specificity that would point to the coming of your son. So that in 5 BC, when he was born, he was merely a statistical anomaly that he fulfilled all of those things to appear to become our redeemer. For those who don't know him today, may this be the day they receive the gift of Christ. And for we who know you, might we remember from the things we've studied today, while we have a great hope of what lies ahead as we look at evil, we understand your hand is in full control and the king is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.